Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the story of how and why rock and roll happened with Ed Ward and Nate Wilcox. 1961 and 1962 are often written off as the dark ages of the first rock and roll era. The original rock and roll revolution was over and the Beatles hadn't yet come along. And yet, as Ed Ward points out in this episode, anytime you're a teenager is the best time for rock and roll. And sure enough, on closer inspection, this period produced a lot of great music to discuss. This week, we'll dive deep into the birth of the Beach Boys, Dick Dale and surf music, the explosion of the twist and how it got away from songwriter Hank Ballard, Don Kirshner and his amazing stable of songwriters in the Brill Buildings, Barry Gordy's struggles to capitalize Motown, and what Stax Records was doing in Memphis. Be sure and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com to access the YouTube playlist and hear the music we're talking about. But right now, it's time to plug in those earbuds and hear what Ed has to say. back with Ed Ward, Nate Wilcox. We're going to be talking about 1961 and 1962, telescoping two years into one episode, because these weren't the greatest years in rock and roll history, or were they? Well, they, they were sort of quiet years. The people who were going to make the next revolution weren't really economically stable. Um, you know, Stax Records was in existence and their house band was coming together, but they didn't really have the money to make records. And they, you know, they weren't in a position to go into Memphis and go, hey, you're a talented black singer. Come by our studios and record. We'll give you money. Um, They didn't have the money to give them. They were dependent on people just showing up. Hey, I want to make a record. and, uh, you know, Motown was certainly feeling its way into the factory that it became. Uh, but once again, it wasn't it didn't have the money for promotion and distribution that probably would have made it a bigger uh, figure. So there's that. And um, white pop is largely a disaster during most of this period. Um and in England, things were not quite to the boiling point. So, yeah, not great years. But there's stuff happening still. I mean, yeah, everybody says, oh, these are the dark ages and certain periods of rock and roll. But 
as somebody who is a little bit younger than me pointed out, um, any time that you're a teenager is a good time for rock and roll because that's what you're receptive to. You know, your hormones and your neurons are just waiting for this information. So let's go, you know. You know, I, I was, you know, I was disparaging the early Beach Boys to this guy. He's going, what do you mean? Those were great records. And that wasn't his aesthetic at all. But that was his teenage years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had that argument many times with people who love pet sounds and smile, but they, they write off the early Beach Boys. And I love some of that stuff, Surf and Safari. Oh, and, yeah. And uh, Farmer's Daughter, some of the album's tracks from those days are, are really interesting. Well, you know, there's, there's The Warmth of the Sun, which uh, was just a B-side and, and doesn't fit into this year's discussion, but it was something that Brian Wilson wrote the day of the Kennedy assassination. When the news reached him, it was his only way to respond authentically to the news. So he went and, and he wrote this incredibly beautiful choral number for the guys to sing. And and that kind of talent and inspiration was apparent right away. I mean, his his first compo composition, Surfing, got an F from his music teacher at school. I didn't know that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I would say deservedly, um, considering what came later, it's it's not a very complex tune. No, but it's a good start for a kid. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you know, with no expectation of it going any further than the garage, sure. Yeah, and I hadn't planned to start with the Beach Boys, but since we're talking about it, I mean, the story of the Wilson brothers, their father Murray, the infamous failed musician, who goes out of town for a weekend, leaves the money to feed themselves, and Brian and his brothers go and spend the money renting a Listen, rock band setup. Yeah. And and record his song. And Murray's furious. They, I don't think they recorded it that weekend. Oh, they, they, that's right. You're right. They, 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 they but they played it, made a range, arranged right, it. Right, they, they, they put it together... And um, and then Murray comes home and, and uh, they said, Dad, can we have some more money? Which I'm sure is something he heard quite a bit. And because um, they wanted to go record it, he knew a guy who had a studio where he was making like, you know, radio commercials and stuff like that. And um, so he said, OK. And then the thing started, you know, it came out on a record label, which the uh, studio owners owned. And then it got even bigger. So Murray was able to go to Capitol Records, where he had connections, and pitch the boys' record. Um, but that, even so, this is a band that has um, come up with a refinement of something that's already in the air, which is surf music. Uh, and the the Beach Boys, as a vocal group, grew out of a day that Mike Love and Dennis Wilson went fishing. And Dennis, who was the only surfer in the entire group, said, you know, it's really funny. There's all these surf records coming out all of a sudden, but nobody's singing about surfing. You know, and they'd already had a vocal group, the, the Pendletones, and before that they were called Carl and the Passions. And um, so Mike Love says, well, let's write a song. So, you know, they surfing. It's not, the lyrics are not great. But it gets the message across. And I think your 
zeroing in on Mike Love as kind of the visionary. Peter Bagg, the cartoonist, has a number of essays in defense of Mike Love and Murray Wilson, and he argues that Mike Love was the architect of this myth of the California high school surfing life. Huh. It's and, possible. And, uh, and that, you know, and, and he's won several lawsuits with Brian Wilson and gotten more and more credit for the songs that they wrote together over the years. So as much as the guy is undoubtedly a complete jackass uh, and, and a very obnoxious public person, I, I think I think it's fair to give him some credit for having that vision. But the, the guy that had already carved out surf music instrumentally was Dick Dale. Right, who was a in his mid-twenties and uh, who had grown up with his family's Greek restaurant, although he's Lebanese, his real name was Mansour. Um, they, um, they had a Greek restaurant where they played bouzouki and Greek bouzouki music, um, which I heard as a little kid. One day I went with a friend of mine, we just took our bicycles and sort of got lost and wound up at a Greek wedding. And I heard this, you know, this music being performed. I thought, wow, that's really great. And then all of a sudden, here's a guy doing it on an electric guitar. Um, Dick Dale also was a surfer. I mean, he that was his, his daily routine. In, or, in order to make money, he had a music store in Balboa Beach, in, in um, which is in south of Los Angeles and also very near uh, Hawthorne, where the Beach Boys lived, and also very near the um, Fender Guitar Factory. And uh, so Leo Fender saw that this guy was selling a lot of guitars and w went and had him sort of beta test new equipment, particularly amplifiers. And meanwhile, Dick Dale puts together this band and they start performing in an ice cream parlor in Balboa Beach. So he, he goes, he, he wakes up, he goes surfing, then goes into the music store, opens it up, and then mid-afternoon, hands it off to one of his employees, goes surfing again, goes home, changes his clothes, puts down his board, picks up his guitar, and goes to work again. So they're having these, these sessions at this ice cream store, and it just blows up. And the ice cream store says, I'm sorry, we can't handle this anymore. So Dick, with his father, his father was always incredibly supportive financially and, and emotionally to his music career, because I think probably, uh, I don't remember ever seeing that uh, Dick's father was part of the family band, but um, he, he was... He definitely knew that music was something you could make money from and it was really important. So um, they they formed this Deltone record label without anything particularly to record on it. And, and uh, so he invests in renting this big uh, theater that used to do beachside dances during the big band era. And the landlord thought he was crazy, but then again, Nobody else was renting this thing. And pretty soon they're attracting thousands of kids to these dances. And the surfers are doing the surfer stomp, which is exactly what it sounds like. Right leg, left leg, right leg, you know, dump, 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 dump. It's, you know, yeah. not great sophisticated dancing, but it was a way of getting out your energy after a day of, of you know, riding the surf. Yeah, and so the other big phenomenon that happens this year is the twist. And I, I meant to talk about it a little bit in the last episode and didn't get to it, 
But Chubby Checker had been working on something called the Toot. Right. According to your book, which... <laughs> who, who knows what that was? I mean, he, here was this, you know, young kid who was like really desperate to make it. And his main talent was for um, impressions. He made all these records where he imitates people of the day. I mean, this, this is not an unknown phenomenon. You know, uh, um, Clarence Frogman Henry had a very similar uh, career. And, and uh, but he, you know, he, he's caught the ear of somebody at a Philadelphia record label. And, you know, they, they're always looking for teenagers who sing. And um, so they, they got him and, and yeah, he's recording this thing, The Toot. And I don't know where, who came up with the idea of re-recording a Hank Ballard B-side, but um, they did, and it was it was the twist, um, because that was a, a dance that black teenagers were doing, and uh, but this was a you know one one of the labels that was in the family that uh, recorded Bobby Rydell and and uh, all those people, and so they they had good connections with Dick Clark and, and American Bandstand and AM radio. And so they, they put this thing out and it blows up. And who knows why, but there it was, you know, it was happening and it it happened really, really fast. Um, Hank Ballard re-released or King Records re-released uh, Hank Ballard's uh, version because obviously in order to release the recording they'd had to get permission from Lois Music who owned the copyright on it and Lois Music goes uh-uh somebody's recording the twist um, and they checked around and you know their their guys said yeah it's still happening in the clubs so there we are the twist is uh in competition with itself and of course Chubby Checker won because um well, we talked about payola last week, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, there was no payola. Of course not. But but Hank was having a, a good run. He had a couple of hits right around the yeah, time. Yeah, wasn't that let's go, let's go, let's yeah. go, you know? And, uh, I mean, Hank Ballard is like one of the under-acknowledged titans of black music because he wasn't particularly about soulful boy-girl stuff. He was about fun, you know? Uh Finger popping time, and, and there's a thrill on the hill. Let's go, let's go. What? What is he talking about? Who cares? He's got this melodic gift. He's got this guitar player whose name I forget, who was, when I interviewed him, he came to Antone's um, a number of years ago when I was at the newspaper, and I interviewed Hank Ballard. Very short interview, but he, he said, I want you to print that I still have my original guitars. I wouldn't have a career without this man. Hmm. That's very, once again, one of your under-acknowledged, unacknowledged um, heroes of rock and roll. And do you know if Hank was getting publishing royalties for the song, The Twist? Well, you know, I wonder. I think he probably did. I think he probably leaned on um, Sid Nathan, who owned Lois Music, named after his wife, um, and, and, and just said, look, you know, I make hits for you constantly. Uh, and if this thing is going to take off again, you know, we already had it out and it didn't happen. You put it on the B side. Um, cut me in for a little bit of this. And a little bit of the twist would be enough to retire on. Not that Hank retired. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think he, he did pretty well. 
Yeah. And that the coming is like a capstone to a career that goes back to the early fifties. And we've talked about through the series with, uh, you know, work with me, Annie and that whole right. trilogy of dirty songs and everything. So this is a guy, Hank Ballard is somebody, I mean, absolute rock and roll hall of famer. I mean, 10 year career with peaks at the beginning and the end of that run. Right. And you really can't do much more than that in a musical right. career. But the twist goes on to become this cross generational phenomenon. Well, initially it was teenagers, you know, just, just like surfing music was, but um, yeah, it, it uh, as soon as it got into um the Peppermint Lounge. I think that was that was the thing that was happening. Dance clubs were beginning to happen, and um, but the Peppermint Lounge was the first one that really attracted attention. When it was open, it was open as a money laundry for the mob. I mean, there's like no question about that. And there were mobsters running all over the place. But the idea was, in order to launder money, you have to be making some money. You misrepresent how much you're making, perhaps, perhaps definitely if you're doing it as a laundry. Yeah. But you um, you do need the initial capital. That's how the jukeboxes turned all those nickels into much more money than was actually going into the jukeboxes. Yeah, because if the feds go to check on your club and there's nobody there and you're claiming that it's running hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. Right, there's dust on the bar and stuff. No. Yeah. So it, it was just, you know, a teen club in an area where there was no teen club. This this was the heart of Broadway. This was close to um, the jazz uh, action that was happening at the time. Uh, it was near Times Square where the Broadway musicals were all clustered. And um, so you put a, you know, a band in there. You know, this, um, Joey D. And Joey the D. and the Starlighters, Starlighters who uh, were recruited from New Jersey for a week-long stint and suddenly decided, you know, the, the, the guys decided, well, you know, these guys are good. And they were attracting, because I mean, they had a following in Jersey, they were bringing in teens who would, like, come in through through the, the tunnels to um, go see their favorite band. And all of a sudden, you know, they, they're playing hits of the day. That's That's what you do in those days. You don't have an original music band featured on a weekly gig and so along comes the twist and they start playing the twist and all of a sudden in the heart of the show business district of manhattan you have a twist club and the b and t kids bridge and tunnel kids you know coming in from long island coming in from jersey they're making it happen and so this, you know, this is a, a center of economic activity and the word gets out to the music business. Hey, there's something new happening right down the street. You know, I mean, they, they were just a couple of blocks from the Brill Building. Yeah. And so, you talk about how people like Ahmet Edergan, you know, 50, what is he, in his 40s at the time? Yeah, probably. Shows up with, you know, imagine a glamorous... Well, he, he had this reputation of being the king of the scene. He would, like, rent a bus to take everybody up to 125th Street to see a show at the Apollo. Naturally, Atlantic artists were on that show, but so were other people. He was going, don't fear the Negro, it's okay to go to this club. And they would go, wow, how exotic, how cool. You know, Ahmed, you really got your, you know, thumb on the pulse of young America. And and so he's going, hey, there's this new dance that anybody can do. There's like nothing to it. 
And so he starts dragging people up there. And yeah, there were some high society people. He had gotten married to this woman, Nika, this, this Romanian, I, I, I don't want to say princess. She's some sort of minor Romanian royalty. So there's there's money and very little else <laughs> at play here. And uh, she's got her friends, you know, and, and uh, so all of a sudden, Charlie Knickerbocker, who is the gossip columnist for the New York Daily News, reports that everybody's twisting the night away and um, reported that some Russian prince had been sighted there. And he, he of course, wasn't actually there. But Ahmet and Nika were and... S- People started showing up. All these, you know, Greta Garbo showed up at the club, which was... Uh, Comes out of seclusion. From yeah, I mean, so something is happening. I think people were really starved for this kind of activity, you know, for a dance club, a place where you could just sort of let it all hang out and and, um, and see other people doing that, too. Yeah. You know, because the, 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 the club had, had dancers, who were on stage dancing, which was also something of a novelty, um, and so you know it was it was like this big fun zone. And your reference to the Sam Cooke hit dance twist in the night away, it's not just the twist, but you know Joey D had the peppermint twist. There's all these. Oh yeah, people there, there's doing... all kinds of twist exploitation records out there, uh, and, and the thing is that it's not dependent on a rhythmic pattern you know the stroll was it had that that beat that it had and a lot of the you know mashed potato all these all these other dance crazes are dependent on a rhythm that that you do steps to there are really no steps to the twist it's like round and round and up and down you know that's that's really all you and there's all kinds of variations you can invent for yourself but it's as a dance, it's monotonous, but there's a million records, older records, which Ahmet immediately recognized, hey, the following Ray Charles records would make a great twistin' with Ray Charles, and Chess is putting out twistin' with Bo Diddley, and, and, and you know, all these, these records that were previously just records that somebody made, they suddenly became twist records. Yeah, and but there's a few originals of note that fall into this Sam Cooke's, obviously. But Burt Burns write one, writes one for the Isley Brothers, Twist and Shout. Right. That, that is heard by some guys in Liverpool. and Right, know. that's one, one of the records that really crossed over. Um, and, and, you know, there, there was, uh, oh, what other, you know, what, what differentiated the peppermint twist from the twist? Well, you could claim there was something, but it really didn't matter in practice. Yeah, and so, and bringing up Burt Burns segues into another phenomenon this year that you call Teen Pan Alley, which right. is these, Burt Burns was a little bit older than most of his contemporaries there, but but he's very similar in a lot of ways to people that were on like the Aldon publishing group that Don Kirshner founded. Right, with Al Nevins. Al Nevins was 40-some years old, and, and the Platters re-recorded or recorded his hit Twilight Time, a song he'd written years ago, and had a hit with it in, I think, 1959. So he was looking to get into the teen market, but realize, he was smart enough to realize that he wasn't a teenager and that he would need a young man, and, and, and Al 
sorry, Don Kirshner was 23 years old and wasn't a teenager either, but remembered being a teenager and yeah. was able to write teenager songs. He'd been writing with Bobby Darren's son, but he puts together this amazing stable of songwriters. You've got Neil Sedaka and uh, uh, Howie Greenfield. Greenfield. But then you have this clutch of young, sometimes married couples, sometimes boyfriend-girlfriend couples, but Jerry uh, Goffin and King with Carol King and Jerry Goffin is the big one, but Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil. Uh, Ellie Greenwich and yeah. Jeff Barry. They're, they're, you know, they're just coming out of the woodwork, um, largely from Long Island for some unknown reason. Uh, and um, they're, uh, they are authentic teenagers. I mean, Goffin and King were 19 when they signed with Aldon. And they're, and they're cranking out the hits right away. Right. Well, they know what, it's like, as Dion said, to be a teenager in love, you know. And, and <laughs> yeah. so you 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 make all these. You know, Car- Carol King comes to work, and, and um, uh, Neil Sedaka writes a song, "Oh Carol," a- and uh, so Carol records O'Neill as as a follow up. But the song is written by her husband. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're they're just having fun with it. And that's the thing that's contagious. Even when they're not the performers, they're having fun or they're imagining genuine teenage things and setting them to music and also have their finger on the pulse of the kind of music that teenagers want. You know, they're they're not a bunch of old Italian guys in Philadelphia making the, the, their stars record Al Jolson, which yeah, yeah. actually happened, folks. Yeah, you talk about the Bobby Rydell album and <laughs> the tribute to Al Jolson. Well, it wasn't just Al Jolson. It was a tribute to the great ones yeah, or something. Yeah, Bing Crosby was in there. Yeah, well, I mean, Frank Sinatra. who's buying Bing Crosby records? What, you know, 18, 15-year-old, which is, I think, probably the median age that um, record teen record buyers were at this point. You know, who's buying that? And, and instead, you know, that they, they can turn on the radio and hear, will you still love me tomorrow? Which is an incredibly important issue, particularly for girls. And there's girls, actual teenage girls, singing this song. If I give in to your pressure, boyfriend, are you going to even want to look at me tomorrow morning? Huh? Yeah, and the Shirelles do the, the hip version of that. And to me, the one of the fascinating things about that Brill Building era, and there's actually two different buildings. One of them is the Brill Building, like 1619 Broadway, and then 1650 Broadway was where most of these people were actually officed. Right. But they're collectively... Well, no, that, that, that 1650 is, the I think, the Brill Building. And then 1619. 1619 is, is Atlantic Records and others. Aldon and others. But they, they've got... Atlantic has two floors in there with a really good recording studio and all this stuff. So, you know, that it, this is the music business district of New York. Yeah, and, and there's this, to me, fascinating cultural blender going on where you have these predominantly Jewish teenagers writing these songs, but they're obsessed with Latin beats. Right. And, you know, Martin Schumann, Mort Schumann with Pomus and Schumann is like the king of this, but... Uh, Carol King was too, and and all these they're fascinated with Latin beats, and they're being sung by African Americans, right? And frequently produced by African Americans like Luther Dixon, who has this weird partnership uh, with Florence Greenberg, with Florence Greenberg, whose whose husband owns Wise Potato Chips. 
<laughs> I did not know that. I did not know that. I'm not positive of that, but that's what I always heard. Yeah. Well, and and uh, meanwhile, she's having an affair with Luther Dixon. <laughs> and cutting a lot of great records. Right. I mean, marriage. it's like, you know, she needs money. She goes to her husband. goes, here, buy a record. Card, whatever. Just get out of my hair. And and so she's out of his hair, and, and she's making hit records. Uh, Scepter, I mean, she must have had great ears. She uh, put out so much good stuff over the years, and it was predominantly African-American stuff, not exclusively. Yeah, and so, you know, that's fascinating to me, but then you've got Barry Gordy in Detroit, an African-American man who's seizing the means of production right. and putting together his own assembly line and his own team of songwriters and his own session musicians and controlling a, it's a vertical monopoly I mean, right he's, he's and and he well he as he always told people i learned a lot on the assembly line and, and he, he worked at the ford plant yeah and so and this 61 is the year where he he hits please mr postman with the marvelettes number one pop but he's also putting together the supremes and the temptations and continuing to work with Smokey Robinson and the Miracle. So at this point, I mean, Motown, if it's not hitting on all cylinders, it's damn close. Well, you know, like I said, he's constrained only by the fact that he didn't have capital and distribution quite yet. Oh, and don't forget the follow-up to please Mr. Postman was Twistin' Postman. <laughs> So That's he had awesome. his eye, you know, yeah, his eye on, the <laughs> on what was happening, too. <laughs> but And then you mentioned Stax as right there with, who, with Motown. Who, who never put out a twist record, as far as I know. Huh. But that was that was the South. That was the difference between black people in the North and the South, really. Hmm. I mean, the, in the South, they were too hip to want blues, supposedly. Yeah. But they were certainly hip enough to make their own cultural statement. Like the instrumental albums or singles that Stack starts to hit with. Like right. Last well, Night that, is the first one. Right. Last Night, however, is is a nearly all-white band. Um, that's, that's Estelle Axton's son, Packy Axton, who um, had joined forces with Steve Cropper and Duck Dunn uh, to make a band, and they had rehearsed and, and come up with this you know, sort of tricky instrumental that their their keyboard player based based around this sort of circular riff that he was playing, and then there's a break and everybody goes, "Oh, last night, you know what? What happened last night? <laughs> well, you can make that up, boy." And and it was a huge hit. You know, a, they Atlantic came calling early on because you know Jerry Wexler was very much interested in anything that was happening in the South. Yeah, he would later come uh, calling it a Fame Records, you know, down in uh, Muscle Florence. Shoals. Muscle Shoals, yeah, and, and uh, that's outside of Florence, Alabama, because he was always looking for rhythm and blues talent that wasn't gimmicky. And I'm sure he just abhorred what was going on in Detroit. Uh, you know, it's like, you don't make great records in a factory. I can just hear him say that. Yeah. A and... Um, so, yeah, Stax was, was having big hits with that. Carla Thomas, who was Rufus Thomas's daughter. Was a hit with Gee Whiz. Yeah, Gee Whiz, which was, a, that was a very teenage record, but nothing overtly teenage. There were no signifiers of teenagerdom in it. And another band, which is like the Marquise, the Marquise was the band. Marquise. That, Marquise, that, that hit with Last Night. But about half of them are in Booker T and MG. Steve Cropper's in both bands. Right. And uh, 
Well, Steve Cropper, yeah, and but he's I think the only one of the marquees. That's in both. Doug Dunn Doug. was briefly in the band, but he needed money, so he and a friend um, started giving helicopter tours. I have no idea what you would see uh, from a helicopter in Memphis that you couldn't see from the ground. But hey, you know, Duck made money on it and was finally able to quit the job. Um, the Booker, the original Booker T and the MGs were real interesting. There were two guys with long-standing pedigrees in Memphis music. Al Jackson Jr., his dad, had a big band. Um, I don't know whether he played drums or what, but uh, certainly Al Jackson Jr. played drums. And Louis Steinberg, despite his name, was black. Um, the Steinberg family, I think he was third generation of society, black society orchestras. Hmm. And um, his sister later became a disc jockey on CKLW in, um, in Canada, which was right across the river from Detroit. And Martha Jean the Queen was the most successful breaker of not only black music, but she, she broke Alice Cooper. Later on, yeah, I mean, she talk about great years. Martha Jean was the queen. She was just you, man. If if you were a promo man and you could get her to go on a record, you didn't have to worry. She would take care of it from there on. You didn't need to visit the station or except to hand out more copies of the damn thing. Hmm. And so Booker T and Steve Cropper are younger guys. Right. Come together. Well, Booker T is. Not, I don't section. think he's even out of high school yet. And Cropper, I don't know if Cropper ever went to high school. <laughs> He's, you know, your your hyper talented hillbilly layabout, um, and, and you know also also you know blackophile to the max. There's a lot of those kind of people that. Well, I mean, you talk about Muscle Shoals, you know, that's like an almost entirely white house band that existed for years and years and years. Yeah, Peter Goralnik talks about it in his in the introduction to his book Sweet Soul Music about how as a kid, as a fan of soul music, he interpreted it as this is the blackest stuff going. But when Which he, it was. Yeah, but when he goes to research the book, he's like, oh my God, there were so many white people integrally involved at every level, not just as as producers or record label owners, but right, as musicians. Right, stuff that requires, you know, white folks knowledge yeah but but no these, these guys are, are playing the drums yeah you know and the bass which is the thing that you sell black music with yeah and, and yeah and so Do, doing the horn arrangements yeah and and you you mentioned florence and muscle shoals but but what's what happened this year is that rick hall produces hits on arthur alexander that are basically country records sung by a black guy. Well, this is a phenomenon called country soul, which people are really loath to acknowledge. Um, you know, poor black people liked entertainment like everybody else. And at least in the 1950s, the entertainment that was available to them, unless they lived near especially in the South, unless they, they live near um, a place where you could get WDIA, the mother station of the Negroes, which was all black air talent, all white ownership, um, and played 24 hours a day black music. Um, unless you could get that, and it wasn't a clear channel station, so it wasn't 
all that influential, um, you had to get what you could, and what you could get was the Grand Ole Opry, which there's nothing wrong with that music. It's really good. Um, it's nothing you could probably make a living on if you were black, but you know it was something to listen to on the radio, and that was it was also a couple of hours. So you're getting all this entertainment, you know, for free on the radio. Um, this this is an important part of of the Southern experience. And Arthur Alexander, I mean, he was a bellhop in a hotel somewhere. Was it in Florence or I can't remember? Somewhere in that there's sort of yeah, in Alabama. He was an Alabama bellhop, and he was really ambitious. And I think his cousin was also ambitious. And and they. He wanted to make a record, and, and, and so he did. But it was a weird record because it wasn't really blues, and it wasn't really... It was too black to be country, but too white to be soul music, maybe. And so somehow, Rick Hall managed to sell this to Dot Records in Nashville, and um, it was a hit. Imagine. Yeah. And Rick Hall, the documentary Muscle Shoals focuses on Rick Hall. Just an amazing story. He's early on. He's partners with Billy Sherrill. Billy Sherrill and another guy cut him out, and uh, you know he loses his wife. I think in a car wreck shortly after their honeymoon. Really, something like Ooh. that. And just this endless series of tragic events happening to Rick Hall, but he he hits it out of the park with Arthur Alexander. And this is a record that these early records. I mean, it's not just your movement. You better move on, but also a Anna. shot of rhythm of blues and Anna that the Beatles cover. So that you know these records make it across the sea, and the Stones and the Beatles are end up covering those songs. Arthur Alexander is much better known in Britain than he is in the United States, which is really a shame because he's got a corpus of amazing stuff. And he sort of reminds me of what happened to Jackie Wilson and Jerry Butler in that he has this partnership with Rick Hall. But he signs with Dot Records, and Rick Hall stays behind. And so right. he loses his moorings, just like Jackie Wilson had the partnership with Barry Gordy, but then he's stuck with Brunswick, and Barry goes off to Motown. Jerry Butler has his partnership with Curtis Mayfield and leaves the impressions and goes solo. They continue to work together, but over time, you know, Curtis Mayfield has other things to do with the impressions and right. Major Lance. And so, so I sort of feel for Arthur Alexander in that losing... Uh, his partnership with Rick Hall there, and he's kind of adrift. Later in life, uh, Electra Records had this American Masters series or something like that um, where they found people who had had careers and had fallen off the wayside, and uh, Arthur Alexander made an astoundingly good record for them hmm. called Rainbow Road, which is a, a song somebody else did, but didn't. it wasn't a big hit. So a lot of people heard it for the first time, you know, and, and this, this was in the era when the record business had discovered you could pitch NPR and make a hit. Yeah. Which is, seems to us a no-brainer, but I guess on the other end of the curve, it really was a brilliant insight. Yeah, well, everything's new once. And so you've got these regional scenes popping up, and one of the regional scenes that, that has been cooking throughout our story but starts a new era right now is New Orleans. Right. Which puts it all together with Ernie Cato's mother-in-law, written by Alan Toussaint. Well, yeah, that that was, there was, you know, a need for a new sound. Um, Dave Bartholomew carried most of the original uh, New Orleans artists 
uh, to fame, but he was an older guy. Amazingly, he's still alive. He must be almost 100 by now. Um, and he also had his sinecure with Fats Domino, who was a dependable, if not huge, selling artist. So it's not that he was lazy. It was that he didn't really have to work at it too hard. And there was this new generation of guys coming up and and um, a new genera new generations of singers. So um, new rhythms were the order of the day. Yeah, and Lee Dorsey has a big hit with, with uh, La La. Yeah, is it Yaya? Yeah? Lala. It's Lala. Sitting in Lala, waiting for my yaya. Yeah, yeah. yeah. uh -huh. <laughs> and that was written while he was with Bobby Robinson, who is another one of these legendary people. He had a record store around the co corner from the Apollo in New York uh, up until just a couple of years ago. Hmm. And um, he had these record labels that would show up and then disappear and show up and then disappear uh, depending on how interested he was in uh, in working with the uh, <laughs> or in working that end of the thing you know i guess if sales were a little low in the store he'd hand it off to somebody his daughter uh, who i think was the last person to uh, actively come to work there while bobby walked around harlem going i own this place <laughs> great self-promoter um but th but that was also a tragic story uh in that um the the lala you know waiting in lala was also a poison pill for the uh, afo label afo was harold batiste who was part of a huge family of batistes um, Creoles, you know, French and, and black mixed, for, you can tell from the name. A and um, he put together a studio band under principles of socialism. He had been reading a lot of uh, literature from the Nation of Islam, which was are commonly called the Black Muslims, although they have very little to do with Islam or the Muslim the larger Muslim community and everything to do with numerology and devils from outer space and a mysterious uh, rug salesman named D.W. Fard who was <laughs> murdered. No, I, it's just yeah. too bizarre. But anyway, so he he's saying, well, look, the musicians union here, they won't integrate. So we need to take some control of this. And so let's go all for one. We are a band of like five or six guys. And so we are executives of this company. We, we do the music publishing. We do the recording. Don't own the studio because it was owned by Cosmo Matassa. And still, there's only one studio in town. Um, but, you know, we, we have the artists, all of this, and we share the profits. It, I'm not the president. I am one of you. It is a split, all these different ways. And it was, you know, it was utopian and it was really welcomed by the musicians, black musicians in New Orleans. And so he goes and calls up a couple of people and they come into the studio uh, with a song, a songwriter and a song. I know this teenage girl named Barbara George. And so they um, they record that, and uh, 
as part of the elevate the race consciousness uh, <clears throat> of the uh, organization, they looked for a black owned record label to take this song. And Juggy Murray up in New York, he had Sue Records, which was just on fire because they had Ike and Tina Turner. All those classic early Ike and Tina Turner records are on Sue. And so he goes, I, I appreciate what you're doing, brothers. And yeah, and this is a great song. It would be an honor to work with you. And so he cuts a deal with them. And uh, and also for the uh, follow-up, Barbara couldn't nail the the song. So uh, the songwriter had to do it. And he was known as Prince Lala, very mysterious figure in New Orleans. Um, and uh, this was called She Put the Hurt on Me. They put that out first. Juggy worked it. He said, hey, yeah, this is work. It, it, it wasn't a big hit, but, you know, it got national exposure thanks to him. So then he does I Know, and it just blows up it, right to the top of the charts. And he's going, man, this is, I like it. But he's so busy. It's a one-man operation. He's so busy working it that, meanwhile, the AFO executives, they hear from Bobby Robinson, who's just down the street and has a record comp, record store in Harlem. And he goes, hey, I'd like to make records with you, too. Uh, and he's found this um, auto body mechanic who sings in clubs just as a joke. Not a joke, but as, as a hobby, you know, on weekends. And he's doing really, really, he sounds great. And, and so Bobby comes down to New Orleans and he goes, what? What are we going to record? And they're sitting on the porch drinking beer, and there's these little black girls skipping rope, and they're they're doing this, they, you know, sitting in la la waiting for a ya ya, and and uh, so the auto body mechanic, whose name is Lee Dorsey, he goes, yeah, I can turn that into a song. So Bobby goes and and books AFO Studios because hey. He likes working with black people, and they like working with black people, and they cut this song. And he rushes back to New York and puts it out. Juggy Murray hears it. And so the first thing he does is he signs Barbara George to Sue Records, away from AFO, which only had a contract for one song. And then he informs them he's not going to distribute any of their product. He's not going to... Uh, take any more things of theirs because uh, he's been stabbed in the back as he perceives it. I mean, really, the all for one philosophy should have said, should have included that if black people are profiting from this, that's good and, you know, let a thousand labels bloom. But no. Yeah. yeah Sue, <laughs> Sue Records kind of ended up being. Ironically, accurate apt name for that label that Ike Turner ends up right. Then Ike Turner his... comes along and says, "Say you owe us three hundred fifty thousand dollars," which was probably a gross exaggeration. And you know, Sue continued, but it wasn't it wasn't a big deal. Bobby Robinson, on the other hand, um, we see major rap records coming out of Fire and Fury uh, in in the nineteen eighties. So he's so got staying power. He, oh yeah, he's he's definitely definitely ready to go. And and in the meanwhile, he's like making hits with Elmore James. There could be no more primitive. He he um I think didn't he have Let's Work Together by um I think so. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um 
I'm trying to remember who that was. But I meant to talk about Icatina last episode because they really break through in 1960. Right. But, you know, Ike's been knocking around. We've been talking about Ike since Rocket 88. Right. And, and uh, you know, he, he he lost that because Jackie Brinson, the sax player, was the singer, and, you know, Chess and Sam Phillips. Not to mention that Ike fun. has something of a... a Short fuse. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and then and then he meets Tina and they Anime Bullock from Anime Bullock. Nutbush, Tennessee. And they and recognizes that she's got incredible talent. Well he's always on the lookout for a girlfriend who can sing. He made a bunch of uh, records with his first wife. And what was her Bonnie. name? Bonnie. Bonnie. And uh and then but once it's once he's got Tina then they're off to the races. And, right. And with Sue Records, they have... Well, she's much younger. She's she's very good looking. She's got a natural stage presence. She can really dance. And, you know, if you listen to an Ike and Tina Turner record, you don't even hear Ike. Yeah. Because he, he knew well enough to just fade into the background and and let her do the work. Yeah, but he's also the arranger and... and oh, yeah, he's the guy who comes up with the idea of the three Iquettes to sing backup vocals and to do the call and response on Fool in Love. You know, it, it was, uh, he was... he was This was the, the period of his genius. Yeah, and it's, and it's a great team, but this lawsuit against Sue sort of starts this quest that's going to go all throughout the 60s where a number of people take up the flag of Ike and Tina Turner, Phil Spector... Basically, Rex Warner career. Brothers. Warner Brothers tries to do it. The Stones end up pushing them, and the Stones get them over the top in the late sixties. Yeah, and and they they finally signed with United Artists Records and made. I I was never fond of those records, but then it was the point when Ike's self destruction was kicking into high gear. Yeah, but the in this early sixties stuff, just putting out killer records and builds up a lot of momentum. But once again, the business uh, stuff kicks in and, and breaks him down. And I mentioned Phil Spector, though, and he's he's connected to the Brill, Brill Building. He's like right. the best customer of all these right, cause songwriters. Right, because he doesn't do anything himself. He is a, he's a catalyst. He's he's not a, he, not really a songwriter. He doesn't really well, play anything. Well, you can argue that. I mean, he co-wrote Spanish Harlem with Jerry Lee. Yeah, that's, and, that's and, true. And he wrote uh, all of To Know, Know, Know Him is To Love, Love, Love Him and um, although I stole some of it from Wagner, and I called it Rokoko rock, but it's really romantic rock. Yeah. And 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 Phil Spector uh, frequently co-writes with Man and Wild, and and so right. there's or, probably or, an aspect of putting himself on the credits. Yeah, that's that's the thing. I mean, <laughs> he also supposedly wrote all those instrumental B sides, which is just the studio band vamping. Yeah, doing something. The idea was not to have something on the B side that the this jockey who didn't like the A side could turn over. Yeah. Which eventually bit him in the ass. Yeah. But. Yeah. And and you talk about Phil's ethics. And Phil Spector's just a fascinating character because he's an artist. I mean, he's somebody who co writes songs. He was a guitar player. He's very passionately committed to the art. Right. But he's also an operator. Right. And well, he's always been a hustler. I mean, is this the deal with Liberty Records where he was there for, what, seven months, this lavish office, and no supervision. So he did nothing. He played nothing. air hockey. <laughs> yeah, he played air hockey with his friends. And then he goes, oh, I'm terribly bored. I'm going to Spain, which was located in Los Angeles. Yeah. And so he goes to Los Angeles. And he takes one of their demos with him. Steals a demo, 
and it, by this girl group, the Crystals, uh, hooks up with um, Lester Sill, does Phil Less records, and eventually just tells Liberty Records, hey, sorry, goodbye. But he keeps his 30 grand. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he's already spent the 30 grand. <laughs> On investing in Phyllis Records. Right. And and as often the races with He's a Rebel and the Do Run Run and, and everything else. And then he writes a letter to Billboard saying that he has kicked Lester Sill and uh, what's his name, Finfer, out of the label. And from now on, the label is me, Phil Spector. Amazing. Yeah. The he's what, 23 team. years old? 23 in 1963. Boy, you're either cruising for a bruising or you're going to be a mogul. Yeah, and, and he sort of does both. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> because far be it from Phil to only do one thing. Yeah. And <laughs> Succeed and fail simultaneously. Yeah, and and I mean, and, and it's just fascinating to me to think of these people that somebody like Phil Spector, who's so accomplished musically and professionally, and basically by the time he's 27 is a washed up recluse. Right. Well, he, I, I really can't explain all that. Um, everybody says, oh, you know, he tried that record with Ike and Tina Turner and the heartbreak of it not selling just took the wind out of his sails. But he'd already become this eccentric recluse you know, he he married uh, Ronnie of the of the Ronettes, and kept her prisoner in this mansion in Los Angeles. And, and he alienated Darlene Love and that whole crew. He lost the crystals. I don't know how he managed to do that. Yeah. But then there's some question of whether what crystals he lost because. There were times when he had a song for the Crystals and he was on the wrong coast, so he just threw together some girls, and, and they were the Crystals. And then he'd send the record out to the Crystals on the road and say, "Learn, this is your new hit. Learn. Right. And so, you know, he was a little playing a little fast and loose. And the fact of the matter is, River Deep Mountain High, his last record on Phyllis, was not very good. Well, it was a big hit in England. It was a big hit in England, but it wasn't... See, the thing that made the Crystals and the Ronettes and Bobby Sox and the Blue Jeans a big deal was they sold to black and white. And black people... Excuse me. Black people were not buying River Deep Mountain High. Yeah. In fact, I noticed the other day that it's a very direct antecedent of uh, Nights in White Satin and Procol Harum's big hit of 67. Um, what's the ridiculous, ridiculous lyrics? Whiter Shade of Pale. Whiter Shade of Pale. That that if you listen to, to River Deep Mountain High and then Whiter Shade of Pale and Nights well, in White Satin... Well, I guess Satin, the can, changes are, are, are pretty similar, can, yeah. it's and, and they're... The pomp. Yeah, oh, that too. I mean, it was, it was, it was his signature style... Applied to the wrong artist. Yeah, it wasn't a good fit for Tina Turner. No. Oh, okay. What is that? Like a schoolboy loves his pie? What on <laughs> earth? And she's going, I can just see her. Phil, this is corny. I can't sing this shit. And, and he's going, you've got to, you've got to. Yeah. I mean, who wrote that song? 
I think he co-wrote it, and I, I think, I want to say Man and Wheel, but I can't Yeah, remember. there's one one of those, Aldon, who, which, I guess, you know, by this time, Aldon was, was still itself. Yeah. They, they very quickly uh, were sold to Coal Gems, which had its own stable on the West Coast. Yeah, but we got our, ahead of ourselves talking yeah. about Phil Spector's downfall, but um, another big thing that's going on this year is Soul is nascent. I mean, you've got Solomon Burke on Atlantic beginning to have hits with Cry to Me. Wilson Pickett uh, is with the Falcons. Right. And, and has, um, what's the name of the classic? I Found a Love. I Found Love. with And the guitar playing on that, it's... And I've I haven't found any evidence that the Beatles heard that record, but it sounds just like John Lennon on rhythm guitar. I mean, it's a ah, way ahead of its time. But yeah, the lead guitar is Robert Ward, who later had a career um, as a blues artist when he wasn't back in the church. Yeah, and He's one and, of those people zip back and forth a but lot. But it's a very ahead of its time record. I mean, it's yeah. the sound of the '60s right there in 1960. Well, you know, it's soul. Soul is being born. Soul didn't just happen one day. Soul evolved from Ray Charles in the early 50s, the Tanner Brothers with the Five Royales in the mid-50s. It was always there, you know, as long as gospel music was evolving, which it was definitely doing, and headed towards the mid-60s, you know, golden era of gospel groups. Um, and there were always people spinning off from that. You know, first was Sam Cooke, you know, but many, many, many uh, people over the years did that. And, and this was their approach. Instead of saying to God, they were saying to the girl or boy. Yeah. And one of them that breaks away from the church right around this time is Aretha Franklin, but signs with the wrong record label. Yeah. And, and well, her father was incredibly liberal. I mean, they were all, it was known that if you were in Detroit, Reverend C. L. Franklin had a bed for you and, you know, his wife would prepare a meal for you. And this went out on, on the church circuit. And everybody knew C. L. because he had had a huge, huge, huge gospel album hit with, with his sermon, The Eagle Stare at Her Nest. And uh, so, you know, Chess indulged him with albums like that. They, when he said, oh, you want to record my daughter singing gospel? She was 14 years old. Um, and they did. And it didn't go anywhere because she was too obviously under the wing of, of uh, uh, Clara Ward, um, who was not very popular because she... Well, not with the gospel audience, because she was one of those gospel people that sang in nightclubs. Um, and nightclubs hired gospel artists because they figured this was sort of a subset of jazz, the same as they were doing with Mahalia Jackson. Mahalia wouldn't leave the church, but she would sing in nightclubs or jazz festivals. Um, so Aretha, you know, she sees all these people. She sees Sam Cooke coming by the house. You know, she, she sees... Um, gospel group. She, you know, she knew Wilson Pickett, um, and so when she's eighteen, she says, "Daddy, I want to sing jazz." And he said, "Well, that's okay," because he was, you know, a very liberal guy. Um, the other, another, I should say, another frequent visitor there was Martin Luther King, who was uh, very, very welcome. Yeah, which he wasn't in a lot of black churches. So um, so Aretha strikes out and uh, she gets to Columbia because John Hammond couldn't resist because he discovered, you know, 
Billie Holiday, and he's a huge jazz fan, and he hears this voice, and he doesn't think about rhythm and blues. Columbia doesn't think about rhythm and blues. Columbia doesn't have any rhythm and blues. They are not concerned with the black market at that point, except via jazz, because they're doing tons of Miles Davis records. So, you know, they hook her up with Ray Bryant, who is a less radical piano player than uh, Miles, or jazz artist than Miles. Yeah. And um, so she, Aretha Franklin and the Ray Bryant Trio, that's a, a package made for the middle-class jazz circuit. And she goes around, and the one thing that's bad is that Hammond is not doing A&R on her. You know, and that's this is still the era when artists and repertoire was what A and R guys did. Nowadays, you say A and R, and it means the guy who hears the band in the club and signs them. But they're all doing original material. Uh, material. Aretha did not have original material. She wasn't about to sing gospel uh, in uh, in the nightclubs because why? You know, Clara Ward was already doing that anyway, and. Um, so there we are, you know, she's singing pop material and getting the new songs via Mitch Miller, who is the all-powerful iron fist of A&R at Columbia. I mean, somebody, uh, I can even think of who, but anyway, uh, should have gone to, uh, to uh, Hammond and said, get this girl some songs. Jeez. Yeah. But they didn't. So he didn't. And so Aretha White's and another artist that Hammond signs to Columbia around this time is Bob Dylan. Right. Who which doesn't was need A&R. Completely insane. He couldn't sing and he couldn't play the guitar. Those were the two things that the folky market supposedly wanted. And, but they, but Hammond saw something there. And uh, he hands off his production to Tom Wilson, who is a newly signed um, staff producer who is this weird black guy from Waco, Texas, who has been in, in Boston recording people like Sun Ra and... and um, I can't help you. Oh, yeah. Um, come on. Well, we get the picture. Sun Ra. I mean, well, well yeah, but, but Cecil Taylor. Cecil Taylor, even more radical than Sun Ra. Right. That's crazy. And somehow Columbia thinks this guy is perfect for white pop. Pop folk. And, yeah. And with Dylan. Well, and it works. He, but he also recorded an album on Dion at that point, That's... which has just come out. Because I haven't listened to it yet, but apparently somebody said, what on earth are you thinking, Tom? Go do Dylan again. <laughs> <laughs> and so the first Dylan album is mostly traditional songs. It's folk songs, yeah. It's a couple of originals. Right. But the second one, the Free Will and Bob Dylan, that comes out in '62, is all originals, right? And as a cultural bomb, I mean, bomb in a good sense, it just right? Yeah, it's it, it's it shows him as a songwriter, as a songwriter with a social conscience, which was just exactly what the market needed. There were people who were recording protest songs, but. Largely, they were like old communists or fellow travelers, people like Pete Seeger. You know, the, these it, the teens were not buying it, and there were plenty of teen folkies, which is important. Now, Dylan has a wretched voice 
as far as the folk market is concerned, but he has a major songwriting talent. So the first impulse is, let's get these songs covered by other people. So you get people like the Chad Mitchell Trio, who are trying to make a hit with Blowing in the Wind. And meanwhile, Albert Grossman, who has taken over Dylan's management um, and arranged for his publishing, he assembles a supergroup out of three New York kids, showbiz professionals. I mean, Mary, Mary Travers made, as part of a, a group, uh, a couple of records for Folkways before mm. this whole thing happened. So he puts together Peter, Paul, and Mary and rehearses them for like six months before he puts them into his club, the Gate of Horn, in Chicago. And boom, Warner Brothers comes in. Oh, we desperately need talent. Um, let's sign these people. And they put out a record, their first record, that was on the charts for like three years or something. And the um, their first... Uh, single was Lemon Tree, which is this kind of fake Calypso number. Um, but there's there's no backup. It's two guitars and three vocals, which is exactly what the uh, folk market was looking for. And then they do Blowing in the Wind and everything blows up. People say, well, you can't sing, but what else is on this album? <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, the Stones are hearing it in England, and, and people are hearing it. The Animals, obviously, right. based their career off well, the first two records. Yeah, I mean, uh, House of the Rising Sun, yeah. they for, they were the first artists to hear a Dylan song go, hmm, needs a little rearrangement. Yeah. And, and, and Dylan always appreciated that. I mean, he changed the way he performed all around the Watchtower after Jimi Hendrix rearranged it. Yeah. And and so you got Dylan going, and, but another thing Columbia does around this time is package together, they discover they own the Robert Johnson catalog. Right. Together, the King of the Delta Blues singer as an album, and it comes out. And that's to really no particular acclaim. It was... Who wants to listen to scratchy old 78s? Well, folkies did. But only a certain subset of folkies. And there was already um, Delta Blues records out there on semi-bootleg uh, labels that people like Chris Strachwitz um, and Moses Ash at Folkways were putting together. So there was a, a sizable corpus of this, stuff that all sounded like the Harry Smith anthology. And but this was the first one that was an actual two sides of an LP devoted to one artist, an artist that nobody had ever heard of. I mean, Harry Smith didn't put Robert Johnson on the anthology, presumably because his records were so rare that he had never heard one or bought one. Yeah, and Johnson got poisoned right before his what would have been his big break, or possibly his big break, the John Hammond, which was John Hammond spirituals to swing show at Carnegie right. Hall. Right, and, and so I, I guess Hammond must have, along with Bob Altshuler, he must have been the guy who put this out. But I mean, you know, th this is what reissues are about. The sessions are already paid for, um, and there's a little bit of interest. Maybe, well, what's it going to cost? Yeah. So no they, they put this thing out. There's no the picture on the cover is a guy playing guitar painted from above because nobody knew what he looked like. Yeah, they hadn't discovered the photos of him yet. They hadn't by even the second record. Yeah. And but this record does find its way to Brian Jones in England and, and that's right. Where... Well it, it, 
like I said, it's a monograph, and and that's a good thing. You know, it's it's one performer, so that you can listen to twelve sides of this guy, and get an idea of his style. And they definitely did get an idea oh, yeah. of his style. Oh yeah. And it and it continues to influence rock artists throughout the '60s. Even though Johnson himself was not even the most virtuosic of that crowd of, of uh, blues singers, and the records definitely didn't sell. Yeah. He yeah. he came too late, really, um, to get a big seller. But also, he um, he wasn't a dependable guy. He um, he didn't he he traveled an awful awful lot, and um, he probably drank too much, and to be dependable. Consorted around with too many women, which is apparently what got him poisoned. Right, right. Uh, and 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 so, uh, pretty much covered everything. The only things we haven't covered, we didn't talk about Green Onions itself. We talked about Stacks, but not the song Green Onions, which is Booker T and the MGs come right. together with this massive instrumental hit. Yeah, well, I think the reason it was such a big hit was it wasn't surf music. Uh, and it wasn't the kind of thing you had to play to the end. See, instrumentals were always pads. Coming right up to the news, here's Booker T and the MGs. We'll be back after the break with, you know, this hit that I have to play. Yeah. And but the, the, the people heard this, they went, what is this? This doesn't sound like anything. And here's this guitar player just not going wild like the surf guys did. He's just putting a couple of stings in there, but they're at the right place and they sound the right way. And kids are going, wait, 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 play the whole thing. Yeah. So there's Booker T and the MGs getting off the ground. And that's, and I remember in the movie Quadrophenia, the, the Who production, there's a nightclub scene of British kids dancing to Green Onions, and you right. can really see what the excitement was. Well, about. It, and it, it had it had a good rhythm section, it had a great rhythm section. Yeah. What are you saying? Maybe the best ever, it, right? And, and uh, so that's why the kids went, "Don't don't use this as a pad. We want to hear all three minutes of this thing." And uh, they did have a, a great career because even if the the song wasn't selling a lot it was still being used as a pad so it they started having airplay right along and i recommend every single booker t and the mgs album pretty much up to macklemore avenue which is a dud the, well, that's why they covered so much of the beatles abbey they, road. they re they did um abbey road yeah basically they re they rearranged the song order but they pretty much covered the whole album right and it's it's a bit... maybe booker t the Booker T party was not so hot either, but that was the point where people were using multi-track, and you didn't have to be in the room. I firmly believe that the fact that all four of those guys were looking at each other and in Playing the groove, together. you know, you your the Duck Dunn's bass is, is hitting you in the lungs and stuff while you're trying to play the guitar. That that makes a difference. It I'm really sure. makes a difference. And and the other thing, the guy that walks in the door at Stax Records around this time, it wasn't the main attraction. He wasn't the guy they were trying to sign, but Otis Redding comes in. Right, he, driving. Uh, I'm blanking on the guy's name. He's a guitar player out of Macon, Georgia. Right. Who was a real Jimmy sh Jimmy Johnson? Mm, that could be right. Is it James? Uh, Jimmy James is Jimi Hendrix. Right. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, anyway, this guy was, was immense on the circuit because he was a, a wild man on the guitar. You know, undoubtedly played it behind his head and all the other 
uh, T-Bone Walker tricks. Um, he, he was playing soul music, not blues, and he, he was a great live attraction. And so uh, this promo man saw him and went, you need to go to Stax Records. So they called the, you know, the house band and, and put him in, in front of the, um, the microphone and they spent all afternoon and he was getting nowhere. I mean, it just didn't gel. They didn't like him. The, the, the band didn't like him. They didn't like his material. And um, so the promo man is going, eh, boy, I'm going to look like an idiot here. And he goes to, um, he, he, uh, he uh, says to Jim Stewart, hey, this kid that drove him in, he, he does relief uh, spots in the show when, when they're live. He's got a pretty good voice. And, and so uh, the kid, he's, he's this giant guy. He, he uh, says, well, I've got a song. So he goes over and whispers around with the band, and they're going, hey, hey, hey. okay, well, you know, this is the last thing we're going to do today, so let's do this. And um, so Booker hits the chord, and all of a sudden it's These Arms of Mine, which is one of the slowest songs ever recorded. And as Booker T later said, I had never met anybody who had that much in him. <laughs> That's a great way he to just opens it. his mouth and it comes out and it connects with every single person who hears that sound yeah. and Jim's going oh man we gotta figure out how to get more out of him and they, they did do. yes and and watching this there's a great documentary on Stax records and, and the way they talk about Otis Redding that he could bring out extra, not just out of him, but out of all the musicians playing him. And right. And really animated this life Right. They, they were suddenly motivated to be the very best they could be. Yeah. Just so as not to sound like an idiot behind this genius. <laughs> exactly. And so there's a lot to look forward to at the end of 1962. We talked right. about 1963. Not so much happening in 1961 and 62, but the foundations for really remarkable stuff are coming up. So that's our episode and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. Come back next week when Ed and I will be discussing 1963, the year the Beatles exploded in Britain, the Rolling Stones started out, and America didn't even know to brace itself for the British invasion. Be sure and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com to access the YouTube playlists and hear the music we're talking about. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more about the history of rock and roll, buy Ed's book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, 1920-1963, published by Flatiron Books, available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and anywhere fine books are sold. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 